Episode 134 of the Bowery Boys, St. Patrick's Cathedral. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Welcome to another episode of the Bowery Boys New York City History And for this show, we're going to one of the most treasured churches in New York City. A place of calm in the midst of one of the world's busiest neighborhoods. Craziest neighborhoods. St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is our topic. It's not the longest, it's not the biggest church in New York, but it is the most popular, especially with tourists. It's helped define Fifth Avenue, which in the late 19th century used to be a street that was lined with fabulous mansions. This church cast a very reverent shadow over this. But more importantly, what the story of St. Patrick's hides is the history of early Irish immigration and how select members of the church were able to represent the Irish in serving their needs in the city. Right. It's a story about the Catholic community, the Irish, the Italians in New York, uh, and their growing power and wealth as well. This church took forever to finally get built, but when, it, years. but when it did, it became one of New York's greatest churches. It's also connected to a lot of modern history. If you want to see a celebrity, you're, it's a good chance you'll find one at St. Patrick's <laughs> Cathedral. It's truly one of the most holy hotspots. We'll also be mentioning two very notable New Yorkers, neither of which was born here. One was born in Ireland, and the other one was born in Haiti. So take a seat as we sing the praises of St. Patrick's Cathedral. So that was an actual recording of the St. Patrick's Cathedral Choir. Quite Beautiful, lovely, lovely yes. right? So that um, I'll have more information of which recording that was and where I got that on the blog. For now, however, although this is one of the most busy areas of Manhattan and, and an area that we've gone to many times, mm-hmm. Tom, please situate where this church is and how it relates to the rest of the neighborhood. Absolutely. Well, St. Patrick's Cathedral is a Roman Catholic cathedral located in Midtown Manhattan on the east side of Fifth Avenue between 50th and 51st Street. When you come out, if you were to come out of the front central doors of the cathedral, you would be facing the Atlas statue, which is part of Rockefeller Center, which is directly across the street. The cathedral takes up the entire block between 5th Avenue and Madison and between 50th and 51st. St. Patrick's is the seat of the Archbishop of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of New York. Along with being the seat, it's also a parish church, and so it serves the congregation of Midtown Manhattan. So people could both go there on a weekly basis... Right, it has a regular congregation that it serves. But then it also has these higher purposes. Absolutely. 
The cathedral was built between 1858 and 1878, which we'll get into. James Renwick was the architect, and it is in the, quote, Gothic revival or neo-Gothic style. Which, which is why it stands out so stunningly on the landscape today, because it is surrounded right. by things that are in the Beaux-Arts style, in the Art Deco style. And the, so, glassy skyscrapers. And it looks like a cathedral from old Europe mm-hmm. plopped down and onto the Midtown grid. The cathedral can accommodate about 2,200 people. It's the largest decorated neo-Gothic-style cathedral in North America. We'll do a little bit of a walkthrough later in the podcast. And if you're doing a walkthrough right now, you're obviously not alone, because every year, more than 5 million people visit the cathedral. It's clearly one of the most visited churches in New York and one of the most visited spots in midtown Manhattan. Right. Even more visited than, say, the Empire State Building. It helps that it's free. If you're reverent, you can certainly go in during most business hours and quietly just soak in the splendor. And of course, thousands of people come to worship as well. So it has many draws for many different people. And it's quite dramatic from the street. You know, when you look up at St. Patrick's, those two front spires rise 330 feet into the air, which is more than 30 stories. Do you know, Tom, that I work, uh, my day job, I work in Midtown Manhattan. I do know that. And I will take the subway stop uh, that is underneath Rockefeller Center and will emerge from the escalator. And the first thing I see as I open the doors are those two spires almost every morning. So to me, there's, I'm not Catholic. I wasn't raised Catholic, but there's something very familiar and warm about this particular church. I've always had a soft spot for it. And, you know, I visited the church today and came out of the subway as well and walked through Rockefeller Center and emerged above sort of the ice skating rink Mm -hmm. area. And you can see, standing there, you see the spires dominating off off to the north there and across the street. So even in the midst of the whole Rockefeller Center complex, you're still in the shadow of the church. And there's nothing more glamorous than seeing the images of those two towers being reflected in the windows of Saks Fifth Avenue across the street. Right. You may be surprised to know that this area, the very land in which the church stands, actually has a long religious history that far predates the church itself. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to crank back the clock here to around to 1800. This area of Midtown was virtually uninhabited. It because, was, of course, the city was way downtown. Yes, was still down by that time, you know, below Canal Street. It was a forested plain. Imagine this. It was a short distance between Bloomingdale Road, which was to its west. And would become Broadway. Right. And then the Eastern Post Road, or the Boston Post Road, which was over to the east. So it was between these two areas, and so it probably didn't have a lot of development at this time. Now, a very short distance once stood the Elgin Botanic Gardens. This was the project of one David Hassock. He was a botanist in 1801, quote, three and a half miles away from the city. So considered quite distant in 1801. He built these luscious garden, the very first botanic garden in the city, a pleasant little habitat of, quote, hothouses, conservatories filled with exotic plants, unquote, This land, of course, would later be sold to Columbia University, which then, 100 years later, would become Rockefeller Center. We discussed the Botanic Garden in the Columbia podcast and Rockefeller Center? Yes, this comes up again and again. But where we're talking about where the church was a very 
peaceful haven. Just imagine woodland creatures, just a, a, a certain quiet calm with very little foot traffic at this time. Now, the city in 1799 sold this land to various owners, but you know nothing was really developed. In 1828, the land passed to another property owner named Francis Cooper. He bought the land on behalf of two church congregations downtown, the two primary Catholic congregations, St. Peter's and St. Patrick's. This is the old St. Patrick's, which you will talk about here in a second. Now, why would he be buying the land for churches that were downtown? Well, you know, considering that it's so far away, the city is growing rapidly, but up here in this area with this decaying botanic garden over here. The city's not going to get here anytime soon. So they decided, well, we need to have a cemetery for our congregants, like a special Catholic cemetery. And St. Patrick's Cathedral downtown, Old St. Pat's did have a cemetery around it, but that was obviously very limited space, and it was pretty much reserved also for notable Mm -hmm. New Yorkers. Now, of course, this never happened. They actually found that the soil was unfit for burials. Mm. I'm not sure what scientific techniques they had in, you know, in the 1830s to have determined this. But it's interesting, as Will mentioned, of course, later, there are people buried here to this day. So the cemetery never got built here, but what did was a very small Jesuit school. In 1808, the Diocese of New York was formed. Now, the Archdiocese is what it is today. So the New York Archdiocese at this point has this land way out of town, unfit for human burial. Right, but they, exactly. they own it anyway. So. Right. But even before they got this land from Mr. Cooper, there had actually been some a religious presence here. A small Jesuit school had opened here during this period before Mr. Cooper bought it. In 1813, they directed, the diocese directed the building that had been constructed here for a different use, a very curious use. In 1813, um, an intriguing foreigner entered the port of New York City, a man by the name of Augustine de la Strange. Hmm, De La Strange. Um, De La Strange. <laughs> he was a Trappist monk. He was fled France during the French Revolution. The diocese set him up here in this school. It had originally been built for, it was a Jesuit school, but then moved him here, and all of a sudden it became a Trappist monastery. An extraordinary idea to think of a monastery here in the middle, in mid-Manhattan, today one of the most congested areas. Mm. I usually think of monasteries being in places that are very remote and peaceful. Right. And in fact, Where you can it, contemplate. And, yeah. In fact, you could have right. con- lots of contemplation could in have been done air. at right. this particular time. So he, he and the monastery was there, were there for a very short time. The building was then later abandoned and then became an orphanage and then a deaf and dumb asylum. Mm-hmm. So this is during this period is when Cooper bought the property outright. In 1840, there was an attempt to build a proper church in this space. The church would be called St. John the Evangelist. This being, of course, after the grid plan, New York has already been carved up into blocks. So the modern block that St. Patrick's sits on today is carved up. And it seemed likely that the city was going to grow up to this area at some point. However, not soon enough. For St. John the Evangelist, unfortunately, it had so many financial woes 
And there was this imperfect, perhaps even corrupted trustee system that governed the use of the church that they ran out of money. It had to be sold at auction. The reverend of the church, a man named Felix Larkin, he was so had been so aggrieved and stressed out by this whole thing that he actually died of what they considered to be stress stress-related illnesses. But St. John the Evangelist was built. It was built there, correct. And those that worked in the church also worked at the asylum, which was still here. In 1853, the Reverend Michael Curran would acquire the land, and he would acquire it exclusively for St. Patrick's Cathedral. So now... Downtown. Because by this time, the church was outgrowing and needed a new place. Now, this is where we need to back up a little bit, give a little bit background on St. Patrick's Old Cathedral. And we should also say that we have an entire podcast uh, in our archive. (laughs) Episode number nine of the Bowery Boys was on St. Patrick's Old Cathedral. Nine? Nine. This is That was like a hundred years ago. And And if you listen to it, it's like... It is slight. <laughs> it's it very slight. slight. It's slight in form. Uh, we're very, you know, slightly informed. <laughs> we're gregarious, but we're hard. We're hardly encyclopedias of knowledge. So, Tom, why don't you give us an? Why don't you recap that entire episode here for us? And we'll go back downtown to the birth of Old St. Patrick's Cathedral. <laughs> Well, in 1785, New York got its first Catholic church, St. Peter's on Barclay Street. At this point, around 1800, more and more Irish were arriving every day, and the Catholic population in the city was booming. They needed another house of worship. So they chose land outside of the city, up at Prince Street and Mott Street, in a plot of land that had been a cemetery for St. Peter's Church. Mm -hmm. Construction on St. Patrick's Cathedral took place between 1809 and 1815. It was named, obviously, after St. Patrick, who is the patron saint of Ireland, and 4,000 people attended uh, the dedication ceremony in 1815. And I believe the architect was Joseph Mangan. That's right. Who helped uh, with the building of City Hall. That's right. So that, which, that to me says, uh, it says that this building was of not insignificance. And it know? was being uh, constructed at the same time. So he had some pretty high profile projects underway. He designed it in the, in the beautiful Gothic style, uh, lovely intricate interior. Around the premises is a slightly curvaceous brick wall, which we go into much detail <laughs> well, about a, in our it's podcast. It's an interesting wall. It's, yeah. it's a beautiful wall, and it you know doesn't espe- have any graffiti, especially that yeah, no graffiti, and especially <laughs> as the neighborhood is very trendy. Right. Um, it's interesting to have this almost a fortress-like wall that surrounds it. It really defines the neighborhood, and and inside, of course. There are the graves and tombstones of prominent New Yorkers, early Catholic bishops uh, in New York, many graves of a brigade of Irish immigrants who fought and died in the Civil War, and the original grave of Pierre Toussaint, who was a black New Yorker, a slave born in Haiti, and would not wind up being interred here for the long run. We'll get to Toussaint later. But Pierre was notable in that even as a slave, he was raising money for the construction of St. Patrick's Old Cathedral. This would be a center point for 
uh, Catholics and early Irish immigrants. And this is, we're talking the era before the real flood. The Irish famine delivered thousands of immigrants uh, before the flood truly happened. And it was not really easy for them, of course, either, because they were the newest immigrants in town. They were taking the lowest paying jobs. And so they, of course, became scapegoats as well. There was a lot of anti-Catholic bigotry going on. So especially in 1836, there were almost gang warfare in the streets in Mott and Mulberry as people tried to burn down, take down, pillage the church itself. The Irish community really did fight back uh, in protecting their, their cathedral. They cut holes in that famous brick wall and shoved their muskets through and were shooting back at people on the streets. It's an incredibly dramatic story of how a population came to the defense of its most cherished institution. What's interesting is the church itself, in comparison to New St. Patrick's, Mm. looks quite plain. Well, part of that, of course, is because the church suffered a fire during the construction of the new cathedral and Mm. was rebuilt as quickly as possible. So the facade on the outside is a little bit simpler than it was was before. Right. In 1842, John Hughes became the Bishop of New York. And in 1850, New York became an archdiocese, as you mentioned, and Hughes became the first archbishop. John Hughes is an incredible figure and plays hugely into the new church. So I have a lot to say about him in a second. But just right. in context for the old cathedral. He he had become the first archbishop in 1850. And it was at about this time when their congregation downtown was becoming too large There were so many Catholics arriving in New York that Hughes realized that they really needed another larger cathedral. So it was under Hughes's direction, really, that this whole project moved forward to to build a new larger cathedral way up on 50th Street. Not only did they need something bigger, but they also wanted something more impressive and and something that would make a stronger statement about Catholics in America. There was money, there was power, and they wanted to to say something. By the 1850s, these new Irish immigrants were developing power, infiltrating government via political machines, of course, but all aspects of life in New York. And one of the main reasons was because of this... Archbishop John Hughes. And Hughes got a little flack for this, too, for choosing this land uptown. People called it Hughes Folly. Yes, exactly. Now, I feel like since we're going to focus here on him, why don't I give a little backdrop on yes, Hughes? Yes, please. He's, he's someone we've mentioned on other shows. I think that we've. it's time to finally give him some due here. Obviously, there is a 1980s film director also named John Hughes. This, not, not the same. Not the same. This John Hughes has lit... Far more than 16 candles. Oh, well done. <laughs> this John you have Hughes, that one prepared. <laughs> this John Hughes prefers an Irish breakfast club. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. Um, I don't have any more. I couldn't fit a, about last night. Into, uh, yeah, so anyway. Though this John Hughes may have known a Molly O'Ringwall. <laughs> Most likely. He knew a few Mollies, I'm oh, Molly, sure. Yes. yes. Now, um, this John Hughes was born in 1797 in County Tyrone um, in Northern Ireland, His family experienced great intimidation during this time due to their Catholic faith. There was a lot of anti-Catholic penal laws at this time. So his father jumped the ocean and came to America, moved to Pennsylvania in 1816. John, 20 years old, joined him the next year. 
1826, John Hughes became a priest, and his first parish was in Philadelphia. He also harbored a lifelong interest in botany and and horticulture, which I find Hmm. sort of an interesting tie, considering Hossack's botanic garden. I don't know. I find that something... Something hmm. coincidental about that that's interesting. Um, he showed remarkable leadership at this time in Philadelphia. He built, even built a new church there and was a solid rock during a very tumultuous time of religious controversies um, within the Catholic Church there. He was seen quickly as this young and vibrant leader of hmm. the community. He had a very strong personality. In fact, he was eventually brought to New York to sort out some financial and leadership traumas here that the church was having. He became a bishop in 1838. In fact, he was consecrated as a bishop at Old St. Pat's here. Uh-huh. The timing here I find really interesting for Hughes because he was in the right place at the right time to be a leader because it was the, these years right before the Irish famine would send these thousands of immigrants over. Um, many Catholic leaders up to this time tried to keep a low profile. They they thought it was best to protect their flocks by by being low-key and not being involved in politics and to be very secluded. A lot of religious communities are today in New York, but this was not Hughes' style. To quote the author Edwin Burroughs from the book Gotham, which we just lo- we both love, Hughes, quote, had a stern mouth, muscular body, and an intimidating presence. He welcomed conflict. He took it head on, believed that Catholics actually had a mission to convert the entire world. And he was not afraid to use politics and to align with social leaders at this time to expand the role of the church into everyday life of New York. He became so powerful and so notable by this time that he would sign his, whenever he would sign a letter, he would add this little kind of imposing cross symbol next to his name that looked a little bit like a dagger. So Mm. people soon, at least outside the Catholic world, they soon referred to him as Dagger John, giving Mm. him a little bit of menace to his name, but also this power that hadn't really been associated um, with Catholic leaders. His huge concern at this time was actually not the building of churches, but of schools, of Catholic schools. The education system of New York was being governed by this public school society, which was essentially a missionary arm of the Protestants. I mean, it was closely aligned with Protestant religion. And I assume that they weren't too terribly kind to the Catholics in their teaching. No, they they slandered them. In fact, all the time. And they used the King James Bible in classes, which was seen as a Protestant text, a Protestant version mm-hmm. of the Bible. Hughes was not afraid to fight this issue all the way up to even getting the governor himself, William Seward, involved and battling the city council to try to change this. In fact, thanks to his involvement in 1842, New York changed its school system and it formed a board of education and actually banned specific religious instruction from school. So it's almost like Hmm. one of the first instances of a modern idea of what we consider a separation of church and state happened here. Um, If we ever do a podcast on the New York public school system, and which we, absolutely we, we should. should. Yes. We're going to spend a lot more time here because it's absolutely fascinating. And it really affects 
school systems throughout the United States. And the it things was, that he, he, his involvement. And it was in because of Hughes that we have a board of education? Well, it was, he was the lead agitator in pushing, uh, pushing back for these changes. It was basically, well, you can't have one particular religion being taught in a school if there are other religions. So it's right. best to not have any religions Incredible. being taught. I should note, by the way, by this time in 1840, he purchased this manor called Rose Hill, which was north of Manhattan, in today's Bronx. And he opened a Catholic school there called St. John's College. Today, we call that Fordham University. Mm-hmm. This forcefulness of Hughes had a little bit of a backlash because his brazenness unsuspectingly re-energized the nativists, the anti-immigrant movement. Well, if you're agitating, happened. you shouldn't be... <laughs> Terribly surprised <laughs> to hear know. that people will be agitated. So, I mean, this this was a huge movement during the 1840s. New York even voted in a nativist mayor named James Harper in 1844, you know, just in time for this huge burst of immigration that was about to happen. You know, Hughes was in the forefront of all of this and claimed, quote, if a single Catholic church be burned, the city would become a Moscow unquote, was his actual quote, that being a reference to like Napoleon's invasion, which had happened at this time. So it really shouldn't be any surprise then that this muscular, in-your-face archbishop was the same one who was pushing for this new, muscular, larger-than-life cathedral uptown. Exactly. Now, let me tell you how that came about, because it it required a little upgrade of the, uh, the diocese itself in New York, because in 1850... The diocese of New York became an archdiocese. Now, I'm not Catholic or schooled. All I know is that 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 allowed them a lot more power and allowed Hughes a lot more power because he became the very first archbishop of New York. There have only been 10 men in this role. So Hughes is the very first one. Today's archbishop is Archbishop Dolan's, the current one. You know, greater power, this greater population – Using this, he had all of these ambitious building programs throughout the city. So, as you said, he looked at this plot of land uptown. He saw what was happening in the city, as everybody did, this northern growth, and knew that this area, or just suspected that this area was going to become very important, and so identified it as the location for a new St. Patrick's Church. You know, they did call it Hughes Folly, and I can see why, I suppose. There were little clusters of maybe tenements and row houses by this time in the area. But, but people it, were still living downtown. It was still barren. I mean, like, keep in mind that Croton Reservoir, which was on 42nd Street and 5th Avenue, that was what people considered to be in the city, but very northern. I mean, why would you put a reservoir in the center of town? So it was still considered to Mm. be a little bit on the outskirts. So then to throw all this money into a huge cathedral, which would have been the largest church in New York, out out there, it does seem like silly. And to make all of your parishioners have to travel up to it, because people weren't necessarily, as you said, living right around it. Whereas you had old St. Patrick's Cathedral, which was really right there in the middle of the action at this point. I mean, you have horse cars that that go up there, of course, but that's not going to transport large numbers of people. 
So in a ceremony at Old St. Patrick's, which was at that time, we keep saying Old St. Patrick's, but of course it was just St. Patrick's. Um, <laughs> but in, for, our, for all intents and purposes, right. all, old and new, yes. In 1853, Archbishop Hughes, in a ceremony at the cathedral, stated, For the glory of Almighty God, for the honor of the Blessed and Immaculate Virgin, for the exaltation of Holy Mother Church, for the dignity of our ancient and glorious Catholic name, to erect a cathedral in the city of New York that may be worthy of our increasing numbers, intelligence, and wealth as a religious community, and at all events worthy as a public architectural monument of the present and prospective crowns of this metropolis of the American continent. So he was throwing down the gauntlet saying, this is not just going to be a building for these Irish people, for these Catholic people. This is going to be a building that was going to define New York City. Right, and be a crowning achievement. So who did he choose to build this very ornate Gothic structure? Well, he chose a certain James Renwick uh, for the job. Now, let's talk about Renwick for a second. <laughs> well, I mean, he's, there's a lot of Renwick in New York. James Renwick was born in New York in 1818 and died in 1895. He had a very long, prolific, and very successful life and career as an architect. One of the most important architects. He was born into a quite wealthy family. His mother was a Brevoort, and his father Mm. was an engineer and a professor at Columbia College. James himself entered Columbia as a student at the age of 12. (laughs) And graduated at 18. He studied engineering and architecture and all kinds of stuff. So he's an old family and he's precocious. So he's like a Doogie Hauser architect. (laughs) Well, he had a very privileged upbringing. He traveled a lot. He was exposed to lots of culture. And so he was really a self-taught architect. He he didn't study it formally. Mm -hmm. When he was 25 years old, though, he had his first major commission. He won the competition to design Grace Church on Broadway at the age of 25. That's huge. Just three years later, in 1846, he won the job to design the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., which they called the Castle, the Mm -hmm. brick building. So he was the architect of the castle. Yes, in 1846. So then it's seven years later, in 1853, when Archbishop Hughes chose him to design the new St. Patrick's Cathedral. And for the rest of his very distinguished career, he would design many more schools and churches and public buildings in New York City and and also throughout the country. He had a budget of $850,000 to build St. Patrick's Cathedral, which would cover the construction, the stone, the materials, but not the furnishings or the altars A cornerstone was laid on August 15th, 1858, on the site of the old St. John's Church. Thousands of people came for that laying of the cornerstone. The New York Herald reports, quote, more than 60,000 people turned out for the ceremony. It was the largest assemblage our reporter ever saw in the city. So, Well, and he had seen many assemblages. this, This reporter, I'm sure. Yes. Renwick laid out the cathedral in the shape of a cross, which, of course, is quite common with cathedrals, uh, with the sanctuary orientated east-west between Fifth Avenue and Madison. 
He chose white marble, which was mined in New York and Massachusetts. And for the style of the exterior, he really went with something sort of a French-German Gothic style. I will have to say it's not its not what you'd say the most original church building you've ever seen, but no, it's, it's so influenced by a lot of European churches. Absolutely. It's the neo-Gothic, so it's taken directly from that style. Mm-hmm. The inside is a bit lighter in the English and French Gothic traditions. His original plans called for two front spires, which were eventually built, but not completed when the, when the cathedral opened. Mm. But his plans also called for another, a third taller spire that would shoot up from the center of the church, which was never constructed. And really throughout the 20 years of constructions, his designs would be altered and modified. There were flying buttresses that were never actually built. A lot of this was due, of course, to funding issues. Yes, I was about to say, can we back up here? You just said 20, yes. 20 years what, yes. to build this. There That's... were many delays. They laid that cornerstone in 1858, and the cathedral would open in 1878. A lot of things happened well, in between yeah. there, of let's course. Say, let's start with the Civil War, 1861 to 1865. The construction ceased during the Civil War. Just before the end of the Civil War in 1864, Hughes died. Right. You know, he was, we mentioned him in our Civil War draft riots show. He was very pivotal in, you know, getting the crowds a little bit more calmed down. Well, Well, or a little bit too late, of course. And then he died within six months after the draft riots. And so a new archbishop, John McCloskey, who was actually born in Brooklyn. I mean, it's it's quite an interesting transition that... Hughes, the first archbishop, had was a foreign-born gentleman, right. and McCloskey here, born in Brooklyn. Another reason that the construction was held up was because in 1866, there was a fire in the old St. Patrick's Cathedral, which we were just mentioning. It destroyed the cathedral and was rebuilt within two years, reopening in 1868. However, that meant that for two years, uh, there was no St. Patrick's, uptown or downtown, I guess the congregations just dispersed into other, to other venues. To other churches. Uh, but this was another setback, of course, for construction because the church had to focus on rebuilding St. Patrick's downtown instead of building St. Patrick's uptown. There's only so much money. In fact, in 1878, there was a fundraising fair to just raise a little bit more to push this over the top. 45 different parishes in New York sponsored tables in the cathedral for the fundraiser. Ooh, it's like, a, like, it's like Comic-Con, except for the Catholic Church. And the event raised $172,000 to complete the construction. We should mention that there were 100 individuals as well, wealthy individuals in New York, who gave $1,000, 100 families, for the construction. And then there were thousands of smaller donors who gave small amounts. But it really did bring heavy donations and people of much more modest means together for the unified cause of building this great cathedral. On May 25th, 1879, the cathedral was completed and dedicated. And obviously, on the same day, St. Patrick's down in Little Italy became a parish church. You know, so that's just sort of the main structure opened at this time. Those two spires, those 330-foot spires, wouldn't be completed until 1888 under a third archbishop. So about 10 years 
Right. Later. And it almost seems like the church is in a constant state of additions and renovations. Mm. You can't go a decade without a new feature being added or something being refurbished. Mm. But there were, of course, when it opened, I mean, there were the fabulous windows inside, which were made by artists in Chartres in France, in Birmingham, England, and in Boston, Massachusetts. The Great Rose Window uh, is by Charles Connick, a famous stained glass artist. And Greg, do you know who made the St. Michael and St. Louis altar in the church? I do. I was, a, I was about to say there is a little bit of an American touch here because those altars were made by Tiffany and Company, who would, of course, later move up to Fifth Avenue, right. up to uh, 57th Street. And become neighbors. The Pieta uh, sculpture was by another American, uh, the sculptor William Partridge. That would be installed in 1906, and that Pieta is three times larger than Michelangelo's in Rome. Because, of course, you know, we're Americans. We have to make everything three times larger. (laughs) Then, of course, there's the crypt at St. Patrick's, which today holds the eight deceased archbishops of New York. Including John Hughes. Right. Is buried there. And his successors. And there's a couple auxiliary bishops there. And there's one person buried here who wasn't an archbishop, who wasn't a bishop, who was what they call a lay person, just a normal a normal person who may become a saint. That's correct? right. And whom I've already discussed. And that would be, of course, Pierre Toussaint, who we mentioned was the slave born in Haiti in 1766. Was St. Dominique, as they called it back then. At the time, Mm -hmm. right, thank you. Raised as a slave, worked as a house slave for the Burrard family, who then moved to New York in 1787. They pushed him to learn a trade, which he did as a hairdresser, and became, over the course of his career, fabulously successful. Just an incredible idea to think a, a black gentleman from you know from Haiti from the from a Caribbean country came to New York and became one of the leading hairdressers right. of in a time when for you know, society right for society folk. But why would he be buried? Why would this nice hairdresser be buried here? Elegant gentleman, right? What, what he was an extraordinary person when Mister or Monsieur Berard died. Pierre continued to support his widow and the Berard family with his own earnings uh, that he was making as a hairdresser. When his widow died, Pierre was freed, but he continued in his work, and he really turned, along with his wife at the time, toward philanthropy. He became, he dedicated himself to orphans, to poor New Yorkers of all types. He established a credit bureau for people who needed money and funds. He opened up his house uh, and began taking care of people who he really, needed Yeah, he set like a standard in New York for charitable services. And when St. Patrick's old cathedral downtown was being built, Pierre was also actively raising money for its construction. He died when he was 87 in 1853, was buried downtown. But in the 1990s, Cardinal O'Connor, the archbishop at the time, started the process of canonization for Toussaint. And that called for his body to be exhumed and examined. But once they had his body out of the cemetery, they decided not just to rebury him downtown, but instead to bring him up to Midtown and bury him along with the others in St. Patrick's in the crypt so that more people might be able to be around him and learn about him. 
1996, Pope John Paul II declared Toussaint venerable, which is the second step towards sainthood. So, oh, so he's almost there. Well, he's on his way. So stay tuned to the story of Pierre Toussaint. I just wanted to add briefly that another man who is entombed in the crypt of St. Patrick's Cathedral here, who is also on the track to becoming mm-hmm. a saint. He was a bishop of Rochester, New York, and his name was Fulton Sheen. Uh, he was a radio and television personality and considered one of the, America's first televangelists. So he's also, he's joined Toussaint here. And the there's, there's a third person, a Cardinal Cook, who is there as well, who's also a candidate for sainthood. So this is extremely unusual that there are three people who are in the process of sainthood, entombed in the same crypt. Now, of of course, time has proven that this was hardly Hughes's folly. By the 1870s, you know, right when the church was just about to open, Fifth Avenue would actually be lined with mansions of the most wealthy New Yorkers would live alongside of here. It started with just a smattering of homes, and then by the time the church was completed, the streets were virtually clogged Mm. with the mansions of the wealthy all the way up to 57th Street with all the major New York names living here. It's fantastic to think about, too, is that at the time, the cathedral would just have dominated the Midtown skyline. Yeah, you would have seen it for miles. Uh, I thought this is a very curious home that was built here. I think this is interesting. In 1857, just across the street from St. Patrick's, so it was was obviously just being built, uh, you know, not very much had been constructed. There was a new mansion that had been built by one Madame Restel, the controversial abortionist oh. who built her mansion across. And many believe that she chose this location on purpose. But just goes to show you that, that this area is really becoming a social and political centerpiece of New York City, even before Times Square. Now, with the growth of Fifth Avenue, it would be a, a real sight to behold the streets here on a Sunday, as other churches would soon be built on the avenue, St. Thomas and Fifth Avenue Presbyterian. Which Just up the street. You would see have this promenade of fashion and the wealthy. And people would come up just to watch this. And no time would be better to see this crazy promenade than Easter, of course, for the Easter bonnet parade. Thousands of women in their finery. You know, leaving church, but of course milling about the streets here. In 1905, quote, such a vast number of people came on Easter to see the Fifth Avenue churchgoers walk home from the church that the avenue in the 50s here began at noon to feel like Park Row at at five o'clock when the Brooklynites began to feel for the Brooklyn entrance. So it was like rush hour. Mm. There were so many people on the streets. It's really fascinating. And of course, St. Patrick's Parade which for many, many years had been confined to downtown. In 1891, that procession was then rerouted to cross up in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral. It was only natural. So, of course, throughout the 20th century, the neighborhood then changes slowly from residential to retail. In 1924, a certain Saks Fifth Avenue opens as a neighbor. I mean, if that doesn't throw up a sign that things are about to change, mm. I don't know what, what does. Then, And in the, when you say a neighbor, you mean just to the south. Literally to the south. Across the street, throughout most of the 1930s, churchgoers were greeted with a massive hole, which uh, for several years, then sprouted by 1939 Rockefeller Center. Which just went up higher and higher and higher 
way beyond the church spires. Oh, yeah, casting a shadow down upon it. That statue of Atlas, by the way, would become a permanent fixture facing into the church in 1937. In 1949, the famous and beautiful bronze doors of St. Patrick's Cathedral would be placed there. That main door is mm. 20,000 pounds. Mm. But because of the way it's built, I mean, just a single person can close it and open it. Even the front doors that are not the main on both sides, they're heavy. Those are heavy doors. Yeah, but they are just, they're so beautiful. That center one has these six three-dimensional bronze figures that are carved into it, including three women. The first American saint, Elizabeth Ann Seton, is there. I should mention really quickly the glorious almost supernaturally large organ Mm. that St. Patrick's has. The present organ, like part of it was installed in 1928 and more was added in 1930 and they would continue to add pieces so that today has 9,838 pipes. Incredible. That's a lot of hymn. And those organs regularly play every Sunday for a um, a lot of modern day events that have happened in the church. There have been famous weddings like that of Liza Minnelli and David Guest in 2002. (laughs) I like that you've started. Just to throw it out there. Of all the things that have gone through in the modern history, you've started with Liza and David. Unfortunately, they didn't last very long. They lasted five years. There have, of course, been famous funerals such as Robert F. Kennedy, Babe Ruth and Billy Martin, Vince Lombardi, and Celia Cruz have all had funerals there, and there have been memorial masses for Andy Warhol and Joe DiMaggio. In 1979, when Pope John Paul II visited the city, and St. Patrick's produced a bust of the Pope, which which you can still see when you walk in, it's on your right there. In April of 2008, actually, the current Pope, Benedict XVI, became the first Pope to celebrate mass in the cathedral. Now, Greg, do you remember the event in December 1989 when 5,000 protesters flooded into St. Patrick's to protest the, the Catholic Church's position against AIDS education and I, condom distribution? I don't. I remember the, the era of ACT UP, and so this was, I guess, one of the a major a protests major there. A major event, 5,000 people uh, in December of '89. And of course, after the September 11th tragedies, Cardinal Egan at the time presided over a memorial mass on September 16th 2001 that was also very memorable. Yeah, the church took charge. I, I remember and churches events, all over the city took yeah, I remember, charge. Yeah. I remember events following September 11th. Was, they were a valuable connection to the community throughout New York City. Finally, in 2009, Timothy Dolan became the 10th archbishop for the Archdiocese of New York. So if you visit today, you may get to see Archbishop Dolan during a Mass. It's been in quite a few movies. I know it was in Godfather 3 in a big pivotal scene involving Sofia Coppola. Also in Spider-Man and that great film Beneath the Planet of the Apes (laughs) has a little bit of... Well, I mean, it's such an icon of New York that it's even in a post-apocalyptic ape film. Please visit it uh, if you're in Midtown. It's a nice, peaceful place, a respite uh, from the shopping bags and the tourist throngs. I'll have information, how to visit, where it's at, everything on our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook, and you can follow us on Twitter at Bowery Boys. 
We hope you enjoyed our walk through the history of St. Patrick's Cathedral. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Thank you.